So my dad's having a stroke, right? He's like doing stuff and he just tells my mom, he's like, hey, I'm having a hard time speaking. By the fourth day after, literally can't stand anymore. Turns out he was having something called a continuing stroke. And at that point, like I've realized like, holy shit, like my dad now has gotten severely worse. There hasn't been a moment like in my life where I'm like, man, I significantly could have made someone's life potentially that much better. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It's your boy, Mini-Me, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Harpreet Rai. He is the CEO of Aura Ring. This may be my favorite episode of the year. So every one of my close friends started mentioning and buying this Aura Ring. It's O-U-R-A ring.com to track their sleep. And so I hit up Aura Ring and was able to get two amazing things for today. Number one, I got to chat with the CEO, Harpreet. And number two, I got y'all hooked up with $50 off if you want to buy one. You go to okdorf.com or a ring. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G. So I've been using mine for over a month and I love it. This is not a paid advertisement at all. I just was so excited about it. So I hit them up and Harpreet came to meet with me in Austin. So we met on a Sunday and we started the conversation with my favorite tequila, which is the Classe Azul Reposado. It's in the white porcelain bottle. It is the best you'll ever have. Instead of talking about sleep optimization, we talked about his father who had a stroke which was riveting and really interesting to discuss. Then we talked about making millions at a hedge fund and giving it all up to take a chance on this ring startup about sleep. You're going to love this episode, improve your sleep, and have a fun time. Here are three major things you're going to take away. Number one, three plus major keys to having better sleep for yourself. There's something I was really surprised about. Number two, what's most important in life that we discussed and he learned from his father having a stroke and why he gave up millions, literally millions. I was like, yo, he shared numbers about why he gave that up at a hedge fund to go work at a ring startup. You're going to learn those three things, plus a bunch more surprises along the way. Again, Heartbeat hooked y'all up with $50 off an aura ring. I bought mine full price. You guys get the hookup. It's good until the end of August at okdorf.com or a ring. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G. It's for my listeners. That's you only. Booyakasha. All right, quick product plug before we jump into the conversation. Go check out sumoride.com. Computers have been a huge part of my life and we're raising money so kids can have the same opportunities me and you have. And every 250 bucks we raise buys a kid who can't afford it a new laptop in Austin. So come bike ride with me. It's a 25 mile or 50 mile. It is not hardcore. We go at a very, very moderate pace on September 14th. We have tons of fun sponsors. We have margaritas. We're gonna have tacos and great listeners like yourself you get to meet. So go to sumoride.com to register or just donate to get some awesome prizes like a one-on-one call plus VIP dinner with Noah Kagan. All right, real quick shout out before we get the show going to Lucas Lee Tyson from the Philippines. He left a review and said, yo, the show's really inspiring. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Lucas Lee Tyson from the Philippines. Go leave a review on iTunes and I will check out every single one and hopefully call your sexy face out in a future episode. What's the part that bothers you? So here's the part that bothers me. Um, So my dad's having a stroke, right? He's like doing stuff and he just tells my mom, he's like, hey, I'm having a hard time speaking, like forgetting what I'm supposed to do. And I'm just going to like rest. Uh, And then whatever. My mom eventually is like, wait, something's going on. You're not talking normally. Gets him to the hospital. He walks in the hospital. But he just came in for aphasia, like a type of stroke where you just, you, you can't get the words out anymore. Affects speech. Over the next four days in the hospital, um, his right side of his body just started to slowly shut down. First day was fine. I get there that night at like whatever midnight or something. The next morning he's fine. He's like eating normally. He just can't talk. Right. It's like weird. He's like, dude, I don't know what's going on, but like, you know, part of the stroke, you can't speak. So they scan him and then like we get the results. They wouldn't give me the results of the MRI that day. Small hospital. I don't know if they had to get someone to read it. The next day, right. He like wakes up, you know, and Oh, he can't use his right hand. And we're like, okay. Um, and now we get the results of the stroke. And they're like, hey, yeah, it looks like his M1 MCA is severely occluded. Apparently 70 to 80% of the vessel was blocked. And so, you know, next day, first day after the stroke, okay, he can't talk. Same shit while he went in. Next day, right hand goes. Day after, right arm goes. This one, I'm telling the doctors, I'm like, hey, he's progressively getting worse. Like, is this normal? And I'm like looking up on the internet, calling Sarah. She's like, that's not normal. And I'm like trying to get a hold of like a doctor at this small hospital to be like, yo, I don't think this is normal. And they're they're like, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. And then the next day he stops being able to move his right leg. 
by the next day, the fourth day after, literally can't stand anymore. Turns out he was having something called a continuing stroke, progressive stroke, and that small branch of the hospital doesn't do like any angiograms, I guess, when you go in with the camera. We eventually get him to like the main branch of the hospital, and even there, turns out that they actually don't operate for most strokes. Um, and at that point, like I've realized, like holy shit, like my dad now has gotten severely worse. And I got copies of the MRIs. We did a second MRI that showed the image was like triple the size of the first stroke. And I'm just like, what the fuck? This happened while he was in the hospital. Send it to like, you know, chair of neurology at UCSF. Just started contacting friends of friends of friends who work at like hospitals and got it to like a doctor at Penn. And they're basically like, yeah, like this sucks to hear. But like what happened there is probably what happens to 80% of hospitals. Like if they don't have a stroke center, they won't really do much for you. They'll just put you on the right medication, get you on blood thinners and like, but most of the time that works, but your dad has a severely blocked vessel. So it just kept getting worse and worse. And I was like, why the fuck wouldn't someone there just tell me that? New York City is two hours away. Penn is an hour and a half away. I don't think there's been a moment in my life where I was thinking about where like, had I done something different in like 48 hours or 72 hours, right? And just done something brash and bold and be like, fuck this place. We're going to Penn. Like I'm calling an ambulance, whatever it is, right? Like I just feel like I haven't had an incident in my life where like in 72 hours, like someone's life just like could have significantly been much better than where it's likely going to be. And that person's my dad. Um, Sorry to hear. Yeah, I know. But it's like it's and everyone's like, yeah, don't beat yourself up. about." But it sounds like it's weighing on you. It's totally weighing on me. Normally, yeah, yeah, sure. Dude, there's shit I fucked up that I regret. We all like have that. And if you don't, you probably like either you're super blessed and uh, at some point you will and you'll learn. But I haven't had something happen in that short amount of time. So is it preventable? Most other stroke centers would have just operated. But it's like. And I was Are they just, able to do that, that stuff? Or? I think that you have to do in the first pretty early on. And he didn't get to the hospital, I guess, that quickly. Um, or my mom was just like, I don't know when it happened. Like it could have started happening at 6 a.m. this morning you know they were in at noon so they're like okay don't give them the tpa or the thing that breaks that clot up but it, i was just yeah. like i was just thinking about it it's like yes there's stuff i wish i've done better in life um and there's some stuff i've done that shit the outcome was way better than i thought right but there hasn't been a moment like in my life where i'm like man i significantly impact like could have made someone's life potentially that much better yeah you know, I'm not saying he can't get back to where, you know, is he going to just take a lot longer or? Yeah. I mean, I would think it'll take a lot longer. It, it depends on who you talk to, but basically like doctors I've talked to that look at that. They're like, actually the part that'll likely come back is a speech. The part that won't come back is his right side. Dude, that yeah. sucks. I know. Um, well, I was trying to think in life, like what other times have you had? Like it's irreversible and you only had 24 hours or, I mean, how would you even know that? I mean, you had that much time to do that. Yeah, like I it's just, not to excuse it or not. No, it's it's, it's not. Like, yeah, like I was look, trying to think of any other instances the, where the, that's happening. Yeah, the past has happened, right? There's nothing I can do about it now. All I can do is put my energy on what's the best thing to do going forward. But I was just thinking about the situation. I was like, why am I so upset about this? Normally, I try to rationalize things quickly, but I was like, I think the reason I'm so upset is because I've never had an opportunity where like I missed a window to make something so good so quick, you know, versus so bad so quick. I felt like I. I could have helped the situation and I didn't. I didn't have all the knowledge that I wanted to at the time. But like, fuck, that was like a big deal. The result of that was huge. I've not been faced with like that large a consequence in my life. I don't know if I've faced like that many situations like that. I mean, how would you have even like now, obviously, if you had that same situation, I think that's life. Like if you had that situation again, which hopefully you don't, you'll yeah. know exactly what to do. But I guess like what about another unknown one? Yeah. Be bolder. You think so? I think so. I mean, did you have moments where it crossed your mind? Yeah. There was definitely moments in the first 48 hours in the hospital. I feel like he can't use his right hand. The doctor's like, that's normal. And it, maybe it wasn't like then. Um, I later found out that that doctor's not even a stroke specialist, right? Um, like a general neurologist who doesn't deal, he hasn't really had much training in stroke, which I didn't find out till like whatever the week after. But like the day after, I was like, oh, right hand, okay, maybe that happens. And like yeah. a buddy of mine's mom had a stroke and he was like, oh yeah, her hand like wasn't working one day and then it came back. But when the right arm didn't work and he said the same shit, I was like, I don't know, man. Like that <laughs> seems like progressively worse. Like, and I was like trying to look the doctor up online and I was like, 
sort of went to like, you know, not a medical school that I knew of. And I was like, fuck, like I was like, I should just up and wheel like my dad out of here and call like a private ambulance and transfer to Philadelphia. I was thinking on the flip side how, I mean, maybe to be grateful of things. And I'm sure you're grateful and all that stuff that your dad's alive and doctors. I was just thinking about poor people or people who have like no access. Like you got hooked up that you can talk to the neurology I know. Yeah. chair at UCSF. Yeah, so, Most yeah. people are like, you know, oh, my cousin's like an, uh, a nursing assistant. Yeah. And, you know, totally my cousin's true. friend. And yeah. so it is pretty cool to You know what I, the, the thing I, like I started talking about, I started talking to other people that have gone through this too, like shortly after, just unfortunate. And I started to realize like, yeah, the practice of medicine in hospitals is so different hospital to hospital. And mm. to your point, like how does the average person, like, yes, we're doing some research at UCSF. So like within like, you know, 48 hours, like I like contacted like cardiologists that were doing some research with there. I was like, hey, do you know anything about stroke? And he was like, no, but I'm good friends with the head of the department. Luckily within 48 to 72 hours was texting with the guy. But I was like, yeah, dude, what about the the next person this happens to? There's like 600,000 strokes a year in the US or some shit. And I was like, so this has to happen more than once. And I was like, someone should just make like a food disclaimer like you have on the back of this kombucha and be like hospitalfacts.org, right? Like, like our hospital facts, like top 10 hospitals. You're, what are you in here or a website? You're in stroke, whatever it is, right? Heart surgery, yeah. whatever it may be. And like, here's what they do at the top 20 hospitals. Here's what they do here. Had I fucking just known, like once I knew what, oh, and angiogram and angioplasty is like, once I knew what that was, I like asked to just start asking a doctor. I'm like, oh, like who does that surgery here? And they're like, oh, you got to go talk to this guy. And like, okay, the neuro interventionalist, like a subspecialty within neurology, whatever, the guy who actually operates, I guess. Yeah. And then um, I like, I find him. I was like, oh yeah, can you just like contact him? They're like, do you know him? I'm like, no, just, I want to talk to the guy. I'm like, maybe you should look at my dad's MRI. And I get a hold of him. And I just ask him, I'm like, yo, how many angioplasties do you do a year? He's like, I haven't done one in like three years. Uh, and I'm like, shouldn't, like, shouldn't you know that? Like, what do the top 20, you know, e-commerce websites with the highest conversion ratio do, right? Like, I'm trying to seek that information out and talk to people so I can run my business and learn from those people. Okay, what do the top 20 hedge funds do? How do they invest their money? How do they yeah. diversify their risk, right? Like, we have access to that kind of information, but we don't have access to something like this where people's yeah. lives are, like, literally at risk. And, like, and you're right, it's, it's, this is actually simpler. <laughs> it's like, okay, for every 100 strokes that come into pen, here's the breakup, here's how many need surgery, here's how many don't. Yeah. Here's, like... You know, it's like the local, this seems like actually just readily available should be public information. Like I don't need anyone's names on who got the stroke, who got operated, who didn't. I think with medicine in general, we, at least for myself, we assume what they're saying is true. In fact. Yeah. The internet's made it a little bit more accessible. Totally. But yeah. still they're like, here's what you have. And I'm like, okay, that's what I have. So to actually like challenge that is like, it takes a lot. You're right. Like here, something this severe in health, something this important, even more important than business we don't know shit about it. How have you balanced this? I go through mood swings and, and you know, you, and then I meet someone else and, and they're going through something and I'm like, oh, other people go through things? Yeah. And I think we don't realize how like you're going through something, everyone's going through, you know, everyone is going through something, either good or bad. Yeah. Uh, I guess I was wondering how you're handling that plus your relationship plus your work. Because yeah. I'm sure you go to the office and you have to do your meetings and you have to travel to this sure. and that and people yeah. are like, oh, like why don't you do that? And you're like, dude, I'm trying to deal with my dad. Yeah. You know, and that's Honestly, luckily, like, I think had I still been like my sister works in PR and she like wasn't able to get that much time off. She's just like, you know, like, oh, I just started a couple months ago. Like, I don't want to take that much time off. And I was like, dude, I get it. I've been there. Um, and this is like when I was super thankful, like when I told people at the company, like what had happened, I completely dropped everything as a CEO, dropped everything, probably didn't respond to an email for more than two weeks. Meetings happened, shit went on, like shit was getting done. Everyone totally understood. And it like made me glad that, oh, like I'm actually working on something that's trying to help people and people get health. Like fortunately, it's just such a priority. They're like, all right, that matters more than whatever's going to happen in the business for the next two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. So I was super thankful yeah, oh, yeah. to be able to just let go of that. Yeah. And like other people in the company just step up uh, was great. How was, um, oh, were you disappointing your sister? I feel disappointed in her. Dude, yeah. Uh, not, I mean, it's your family. Dude. No, just, man. Like, it's like, like, dude, that's that, the other you have thing. one dad, family. one life. I was like, if it's, if you're not going to respond for this shit, like what, are, what, what? is it going to take? He's got to die. <laughs> I think like emotionally as a child that you probably also just hold in with your relationships with your parents. I was trying to think about that. Like, was my relationship with my dad better than my sister? 
Indian father, like, you know, first generation, super strict, can't go out, can't drink, can't smoke, can't play sports, got to get good grades. And, and you got to study math and science for me. And so like I was good at those subjects versus my sister is very good at English and history. And so in that sense, he respected me more, even though we, I would say our quality of our relationship is about the same. Didn't have deep conversations, didn't talk about a lot of stuff. You like as an Indian child, like Indian second generation, like you hide a lot of shit from your parents, which is like expected. But um, I just felt like maybe that was part of it because maybe my dad respected me a bit more and maybe he like just never respected her for her career choices or whatever. And so she felt insecure. So it wasn't like the same, like it probably come, this is at least what I was thinking. But yeah, there was definitely points when I was just like, I had to just step up and call her and like, I was like, look, if you're not going to come in now and like do these things and like help out here, like that's basically like, I don't know if I want to see you again. You know, because I was like, this is our dad. Like, like I'm in some things. I'm like a black and white person. Like you step up to what you can. And like, I don't feel like you are. And I don't know what's more important than this. And I was like, job wise, what do you need? Like, I need a PR person. <laughs> we're, like, we're paying someone a PR person what you're getting made. I'll fucking hire you if you lose this job, you know. Um, and she's overqualified <laughs> compared to the person we're hiring. Um, but like, yeah, there was there was definitely that conversation when I just lost my shit. Yeah. Did she end up coming at all? Yeah, she did. She totally stepped up. At oh, okay, it good. just sort of sucks that, you know, like I had to go there. Yeah. Obviously doesn't help our relationship. <laughs> like, um, But yeah. I was wondering where like you got your personality from, right? Because it sounded like if you grew up without sports, without TV, without like <laughs> basically you I wasn't only... allowed to watch The Simpsons. I remember for a while. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, but you have a lot of personality. You seem, I mean, you're awesome. It's just like where did, is that? Uh, is it like when you yeah, <laughs> did it like when you left left for college or something like that? Like um, no, it definitely started to develop some of in high school, probably more in college. Um, and I think part of it is just like figuring out like how the world, it was like a very probably weird thing for my dad to be like, you know, I, I did end up chasing money right after college. Like I had a shit ton of student debt. Like I was like, I want to go pay this off. What's the best way to pay this off in 2006? So like Facebook wasn't really hiring on college campuses. At least I went to Michigan. Um, neither was like Google and stuff like that. And they weren't paying what they're paying now. Yeah. I think like a buddy of mine told me it was like Facebook average first year is like 150. Like it's sort of nuts. So when, when I was graduating, it was like, oh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and we're paying 120 all in. So did that for a year, sucked. And then I went to a hedge fund because it was like, oh, I can make more and potentially not work as hard. And there was a mental like part to it that was competitive and interesting. And I think in like just working hard, figuring out a way and like financially even just getting to a place like my dad hadn't, like maybe that made me more bold when I started talking to him or just being like, oh, I don't need to be this shy little kid anymore. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe that in college, just perseverance, you know, getting knocked down 10 times, standing up 11. In college or afterwards? Sports, college, yeah, high school a bit, yeah, girls. Uh, so all forms of projection, yeah. <laughs> Anything that uh, stuck uh, stands out? Um, I mean, I, I guess what I'll say is like, would it, like, what, what, like, why I? So you know, I'm not one of the founders at Aura. I'm the CEO, and like the reason I would say like what eventually drew me to it was a bit of my my girlfriend. Um, like she realized like, hey, you you are not happy. And like, you've been wildly successful. You're a portfolio manager at your hedge fund, a six million dollar hedge fund. You're managing like, you know, a third of it. And six billion? Yeah. And I wasn't, you know, I was making really good money, money that like, I never dreamed of making over a million dollars when I was, you know, in college, right? In like a year, right? And so despite that, I wasn't happy. And I think she saw that and I started to realize, well, why am I doing all these things? Yes, I wanted to do play sports to rebel a bit. Um, but like, I also wanted to play sports and like date good looking girls and like not Indian girls or Punjabi girls, but like, <laughs> you know, specifically like American Caucasian girls, like not only to rebel I, at first, I thought it was like a little bit of rebellion, but it was actually to be accepted. And so I realized like, oh yeah, I was doing all these things to be accepted, right? That's actually deeper down, like what I was probably trying for. And even despite achieving some success in like all of those things wasn't ha really happy. And I think that's when I started to realize like, oh, like this isn't like what I'm passionate about. I was seeking out, you know, affirmation from other people's. 
you know, like what society tells you you're supposed to have, right? Hans, so do you have the money and the white chicks? White ladies, women? <laughs> I don't know what we call them. I, I don't know what to call them. White w ladies? <laughs> them? <laughs> but you had the money and the women and it still wasn't enough? Or uh, wasn't giving you what you actually wanted? Yeah. And it was a hard thing to realize, right? And it was also like weird. Like when I left the hedge fund, everyone's like, what the fuck is wrong with you, dude? Like you're going to some startup, rinky-dink startup. The company's from Finland. Like our first ring was super big. And I was like, people were excited in one sense, but they also thought I was crazy. And I just realized, well, it was technology and it was health. Like two things I was super passionate about as a child, right? As a kid and in, in college, like part of what I actually studied, like worked on sensors that go in these devices and others like in college. And that's like, that was the nerd in me, but that's what I was passionate about. Um, and yeah, I think that was like what I learned through all of that. Um, and I think maybe that's also probably where more of the personality has started to develop too. What's it like? What ha so I've seen the show Billions. Um, so hedge funds like venture capital funds just try to put money to work, right? Um, and you try to make a return on that. And most hedge funds are two and 20. So if they have a billion dollars, you get 2% of that every year just for managing the place, just for employing people, buying Bloomberg terminals, whatever it is, getting super nice real estate, nicer than this stuff. Um, like, but like, you know, the management fees will pay that to 2% and then they have the carry. So a share of the profits, right? And, and typically the, that's, so the 2% is, you know, the management fee and the carry is 20%. And so you'll make 20% on whatever you make that year. So if you're, you're a billion dollar hedge fund, you return 20%, right? So you're now 1.2 billion, you get to keep 20% of that profit. Right. So you keep 40, you know, 40 mil. Right. And, um, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. 40 mil. Um, yeah. 20, 200, 20% of 200 million. So, yeah. Um, so you keep 40 mil and, but normally there's not many people needed in a $1 billion hedge fund. Amazing. Like, I don't know, 15 people. Um, yeah, it depends. Depends on the strategy. Some of them are quant oriented. We were like more fundamental oriented. So like, what'd you do with your 2 billion? Like what? Like oh, you invest it. So I covered tech media telecom. So like, you know, everything from internet companies, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, whatever. Now I guess an internet company, but like um, telecom and media, we were global. So, uh, I mean, here's an example, like Facebook IPO, we shorted the absolute shit out of it. Um, like without a doubt, because that was like, you could just tell from the experience like of the team at that time, like Mark and others at that time, like, you know, didn't really know what Wall Street wanted. Also, so many people had bought into that stock before it went public that were hedge funds, right? Like on the private market on secondaries that like so many people already owned it. So there wasn't like there was going to be a huge rush to buy it because so many people already owned it. And then we were just like, you missed one bad quarter. And like you're you're sort of toast. And there was still this attitude at the time when they IPO'd of like, eh, monetization matters, but it's more the user metrics that matter versus like once you're public, it's like, dude, mon yeah, monetization matters more than anything else. So how much was your bet against it? Seven, eight figures? Nine. Oh, yeah. I mean, so if you're a $6 million hedge fund, typically you're going to take a position that's like, you know, on average 1%, 60 million. That's if you're going to have 100, you know, lots of positions, right? So, you know, 100 positions. But normally like we would get some bets, like at one point we... We had like 15% of the fund in Google. Um, this was like when mobile CPCs were tanking. Everyone's like, oh, paid search is fucked. Like mobile CPCs will never monetize. So like Google's stock had just not appreciated or, you know, even despite good earnings. Um, so yeah, we would take super concentrated positions. Um, I would say like typically, you know, there would be 10 positions that make up close to like 30% of the portfolio. Um, so you might have positions in there that could be like 5% of the portfolio or 10 you know, so 300 million is because we're millions. So yeah. is it like when you buy kombucha for five bucks or like whatever? Now? No, you're like, you're like, no. Oh, whatever. you know what? The resources are actually incredible. So you get to do a ton of research because if you're going to go put a hundred million dollar position on, you can spend a hundred grand just doing research and it doesn't even matter if you invest or not. Right. So like you can go talk to everyone. You can talk to ex-employees. This is a shit you see on billions, right? Like you go talk to ex-employees, you talk to competitors, right? You go talk to like, you'll go meet with all the competition, trying to understand what they're doing. Like you're trying to predict the long-term outcome, right? And also sometimes in short-term increments. That's the cool thing, right? You get to talk to people who've done it, who've competed against them, people used to work there. You really get to understand the businesses because you sort of have the money and the access to the resources. I've been in GLG. Yeah, yeah, GLG? exactly. We use GLG. GLG is a like private network where you basically can pay for insider information, mm. quote unquote. So basically, people <laughs> it's not supposed to be insider. That's what they say, it, but yeah. it kind of is. So basically, <laughs> people with extreme industry knowledge. Yeah, 
Like they know likely probably how the long-term outcome is going to be, but you, you shouldn't be able to tell anyone this is what's happening next quarter. Yeah, you can't work with them. But when I was doing Facebook stuff or Facebook games, they're like, how's Zynga doing? It's like, they're not going to do well. And then Zynga went, it had gone down. Yeah. They wouldn't talk to someone like me or others. Yeah, totally. Did yeah. Tons but, they pay, but they paid like a, to me, which I thought was crazy, a thousand bucks an hour. Yeah. And then we would, on the hedge fund side, you normally pay double. Oh, so we would pay 2000 bucks an hour. GLG would clip half. But for you, I guess it sounds like it's... 2000 bucks. you're like, I, I do, I'm, dude, damn it. I, I used to I, do, it would almost be like, you almost have to do a minimum of 10 calls um, before you like, as part of our process, we would have like, you got to do the models, you got to build out all the numbers and all the spreadsheets. You got to go do a bunch of primary research, yeah. like talk to people in the industry, use these consultant networks, go to conferences. And some of them we'd talk to like 30 to 50. Um, and then you do, you could do other surveys. And now there's a lot more like data out there. You can get clickstream data, credit card data. And so, yeah, you, you'll spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on any one position. You can easily spend over a million. So can you maybe share a few of the stories where you did a lot of the research and it was wrong? Or and maybe somewhere is right in like what the the outcomes were. One was um, the music labels. Um, so you know, Spotify was coming, and Pandora and like YouTube were all massively growing, still are. And so one pretty interesting thing is the music industry had declined after you know CDs being like burnable, and then the iPod and iTunes coming out. So instead of buying a twelve dollars CD, you spend a dollar on a song. Um, and so the music industry was in this constant you know, decline, like the bundle was broken, the album was broken. There's two good songs on Ariana Grande's, I don't listen to her, so I have no idea how many good songs there are, but like on her latest album, right, you know, in 2000. And so now in 2006, you're only buying one or two of her tracks, right? So the labels are making 80% less. So this, the labels were in this like decline since 2000 to 2015, declined for 15 years straight. Um, and then it was like, you could just do the math simply on like, meet with Spotify, get an idea of how fast they're growing, you know, go try to talk to some people at YouTube, get to talk to some artists and understand like, hey, actually now when you release a track digitally, how fast is that growing? How many streams are you getting? And you could start to see that, hey, in like one or two years, all the streaming paid stuff is going to like actually cause the whole pie to grow again. And so no one was like investors in the labels. And we took like a massive physician in Vivendi um, Universal, like which owned Universal Music still does. And like it was, yeah, worked out tremendously awesome. My best wins were actually on hardware um, just because I studied like double E in college. So one was a GT Advanced. GTA. So they were like making this Sapphire that was supposed to go on the iPhone. Um, basically, like the way you have to grow some of these crystals and things like Sapphire, um, you have to hit a certain amount of yield for it to be profitable. And this company, GT Advance, was like trying to make the screen because then the iPhone would be really indestructible if the screens were sapphire. But then you could like simply just see from like the way the contract was public because a major contract like that with a customer like Apple, if it's like that large of a deal, a lot of times, you know, companies will have to disclose a lot of information about it. And so you could just read the contract and you could talk to a couple of engineers in the space who've like worked on that kind of stuff. And they were just like, dude, the yields, the best yields we've ever seen are like this, this, and this. And then like you could even talk to like some of the chemical companies who are supplying the product to help grow that sapphire. And you could just get an understanding by how much like they were slowing down that the shit clearly wasn't scaling and that they weren't going to be in the iPhone. And then like they didn't end up going to the iPhone and we were, sh they ended up going bankrupt uh, because they had so much debt. No one issued debt again. Um, and that was like. I don't know, over a $50 million win for us that day. Damn, you guys shorted them? Yeah. So now they're on the streets. They they went, and this is years ago, they went bankrupt. So Billions did like a little thing. It was a massive hedge fund short. Um, so yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, look, you get to learn. It was competitive. You get to talk to a lot of smart people. Like, you know, I remember being like in my 20s and you're just sitting there talking to CEOs of $100 billion com corporations. It's like sort of insane. When you finally place the position, how do you place a 50 million or billion? Oh, like not you, the, yeah. So normally you it's all not have, in Schwab. I don't know. No, you don't go on any trade. Schwab, yeah. Put that in. Um, you have traders and like we had a separate trading room operation. And so, you know, you'd put an order into the traders and yeah. um, like once that happened, like you would give them some parameters to work with. And every firm is different in how they do it. And sometimes they would go and a lot still do. You go buy big blocks from banks. So you might have prime brokers like Goldman, you know, Morgan or whoever they might be, um, you know, Citibank, and you'll trade 
like, you know, you'll be like, hey, I need to buy $100 million of Facebook under 60 bucks, right? Um, and the stock's at 59, like go ahead and, and, and trade it for me. Um, and then sometimes you'll, you'll just instead do it electronically, try to do it really thin so no one sees where you're coming from. Because, you know, look, if you do call like Goldman or some, they won't say names, but like they can normally what they'll do is they will describe color. So you can be like, hey, what's the color look like on Facebook? And they'll be like, oh, we have like, you know, a couple hedge funds buying ahead of the quarter, like large positions. We have some guys who like might be mutual funds trimming a little bit. They'll give you like color. So sometimes you don't want that color out there because then people can like back into it, like uh, who it might be coming from this shop or this firm. How do you get the balls and the conviction? Because I feel, yeah, yeah, I think the conviction, because like for me, like I place like for my stock trades, like yeah. I've made, I've made some millions over the years, which has been cool. But like for me, like a thousand dollar stock trade, I'm like, yeah. whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I just bought, um, I bought Chipotle a few years ago and it was like $5,000 worth. And I was like, I can't believe I've spent this much. And it's just, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like burritos <laughs> only cost $10. Yeah. This seems expensive. Um, yeah. I mean, so you conviction is the word we use a lot. Um, and normally you look at risk versus reward, right? So it'd be like, well, if you're wrong, where does it go? Right. And if you're right, where do you think the stock goes? So maybe you're like, look, I think the stock has 20% downside, but 50% upside. Um, and so you're like, okay, my risk reward is 50%, you know, up 20% down. And then you try to probability adjust it and you do a lot of work. And so we would normally do fundamental work and we would, we would literally try to pair all those things together. So you try to pair what's in the numbers in the accounting story, along with like the management color from like the management team you get to talk to and other competitors, along with like trends that you're hearing in the industry from the field, as we'd call it, or from the primary research, GLG calls, et cetera, industry events. And so normally when you start to get like all three of those starting to show the same story, you're like, oh, this is really, this is really interesting. Like GT Advanced, it was like, okay, you know, the numbers had shown that they're playing some accounting games. Like there's things you can do to accrue certain like receivable accounts or payable accounts and like play games to like meet earnings numbers and so they're doing some accounting red flags and sometimes it's hard to tell but then you'd be like you'd be talking to you know the apple and you'd be trying to not that apple would ever tell you but you'd be like hey do you really think the sapphire thing's happening like you try talking to analysts in asia who are like somehow have friends working on the supply chain that might know no one really knows and then you know you try to also piece together with like, okay, what's the management team saying? Are they super confident? Is there a tone? Is there a change in their behavior? I mean, a lot of people now are going and like using conference calls and they're like scanning them for a certain amount of words. And they try to like predict based on like, you know, algorithms that they developed like by the FBI or CIA and stuff like, hey, are they changing their tone? Are they reversing back just by changing the way they talk? So I think you like look for sort of like, you know, a mosaic theory as we called it, like multiple different things all sort of pointing to the same direction. And if yeah. it didn't point, would you not do it? So like the whole idea is like you actually should be wrong. So you're taking bets, right? But you should just be more right than you're wrong, right? So like as long as you're more right, you have, you know, like you should still swing the bat, right? You're still going to get on base or score a home run. Yeah. So you just can't not swing the bat. How long do they take for, uh, in these decisions? Um, man, I mean, our research process would oftentimes be, you know, weeks or months. Um, and you ended up getting pretty specific in an area so you could get up to speed on a company pretty fast, you know? So, um, yeah, but I mean, you normally the process for us would take two weeks at minimum. And that's if you like knew something about the industry and the company before, but typically like four to six weeks. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand the the transition. You're at a hedge fund, you're making millions, which sounds, yeah. sounds nice. Yeah. Um, and then you end up going to a ring company <laughs> in Finland. In Finland. And so how does that even happen? Basically, I had, I'd worked on wearables in college. Um, so I'd worked on MEMS, like, which is like uh, microelectronic mechanical systems. It's like nanotech before nanotech was called nanotech. Um, but uh, I worked on like movement sensors or optical sensors. And Michigan happened to have a strong sensor program. So I knew all the components that went into these wearables. And then I also was like super interested in health and like mainly because I was bad at sports and needed to get better. But um, <laughs> so I, yeah, like I just was obsessed about that space. And I'd always just, you know, was on Kickstarter all the time, buying crap and testing wearables. And then I also, because I covered tech stocks, knew how all those sensors worked, but then also covered all those companies financially. Right. So like, you know, we were short Fitbit on the IPO. You were. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's done well. Yeah, that, that did well. Um, 
Yeah, but like a lot of those, like, so I just knew that space, right? Like I used all the products, tried a bunch of all this, probably tried 20 different wearables. And there was one thing that was always really interesting to me. Like steps wasn't that helpful. Like most people, like you don't really lose that much weight if you walk that many steps. But the heart rate information was pretty interesting to me. Um, the problem is like, if you look at the human body, like you're, you're like, why does every hospital measure your heart rate on your finger? Um, and the reason is like, there's so much more blood flow that's like close to the surface of your skin and your fingers. That's like why we can all see our hands are reddish, our palms are reddish, you know, versus our wrist. And so like, I, I remember that just because we did some work on the wearable space when we were doing work on Fitbit. I was like, oh, like how accurate can this data be? I remember talking to an expert and they're like, oh yeah, wrist-based wrist -based devices are terrible. Like this is a vein, you know, where your Fitbit sits or your Apple Watch sits. Like there's lots of noise in that signal. The signal's really weak. And then, um, you know, if you look at your arteries on the inside of the wrist, you'll never wear a watch like on the inside. Um, and so he was like, yeah, there's like the way we chose that because the pulse signal on the finger was like a hundred times stronger than the wrist. And I just remembered that. And I saw this company on Kickstarter and it was like a wearable ring and it was you know, primarily tracking sleep. And I worked on Wall Street and so worked really hard and long hours and so had shitty sleep. Um, and so I was like super interested in sleep as it is and bought the product and I started using it. And it was like the first wearable I'd kept on longer than probably two weeks. And I'd probably had tried 15 of them before. Um, honestly, didn't plan on ever meeting them. Like we were, my girlfriend and I were in Whole Foods and she saw like one of the co-founders. He had like a t-shirt on us at Aura. And so she just grabbed him. Uh, we started talking, then, you know, in Whole Foods, we grabbed coffee the next day. He was only in from Finland for like two days. Um, and then like, he was like, oh, we're trying to raise some money. I was like, oh, how much money are you trying to raise? He's like a million dollars. I was like, dude, this is hard. We're going to need like way more than a million dollars. Like I know how much this stuff costs to ramp. Right. Um, and uh, the more and more I talked to them, the founders were like, were like surprised by my investment knowledge and my business knowledge, but also the knowledge in the sector and the space. And so I actually personally invested in the company. That's how I got involved and joined the board. And I just started helping them out. And the more and more I helped them out, like I realized I was really passionate about it. And they realized there were like no other board members like calling us every day for three hours and like actually helping us solve problems. Um, and they were like, seems like you want to like join here. And at this point, I'd already been talking to a few other companies, like in startup space and larger companies in the music space, some other ones, just because it was like I knew at that point, probably for a year, like, oh, I want to try something else. I just didn't know what. And they asked me to join as president. Um, Cause we were like, all right, we'll join. I'm like, all right, what will I do? And they're like, well, we need to build a team in the US and we need to start growing there. It's our biggest market from the Kickstarter, like, but we have no way to grow. All the co-founders are sort of in their late forties, fifties. And they're like, we don't want to move to the US. We don't want to build a team our, ourselves there. You know, their families and like their kids are in school. And so they're like, dude, you know what you're doing start helping us build and grow. And so I primarily focused on sales and marketing and we had like no marketing budget. So <laughs> that was interesting. Um, and yeah, just like the more I helped them grow, I think the board saw it and they saw it like, Hey, the business side is going to continue to evolve. We love working on the tech. You actually understand the tech. Um, and, but like, let's go raise more money and build this business and keep growing a team. Um, and so that's like when the transition happened to CEO. Um, and you've been involved with them for how long? Um, I invested two and a half years ago almost. Um, so yeah, like, uh, but then joined them March, like, um, I joined them full time about two years ago. With the hedge fund, did you feel, because I think with hedge fund, you're like, yeah, we shorted these guys, now they're out of business. And then we shorted <laughs> Fitbit, now they're going down. And Fitbit, yeah. we shorted them. And yeah. I mean, the reality is, is like, you're, you're hoping they fail. Well, look, and you you end up, we actually, most hedge funds own more companies long than they do short. I'm but, just saying that yes. you're, you're encouraging market efficiency and, the yes. and so forth and so forth. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I guess, and to some extent, there's, I don't know, did that feel fulfilling at that time? I think what drew me into it was like, hey, you can get good at something and prove it on a number. Um, so like, that's cool. It's tangible. Like your results are tangible. So that appealed to me just like as an engineering mindset. Um, like we were talking about, where I was talking about Warby Parker or Allbirds, what do they do that really made their marketing? You could, ar you could argue about it. Right. Um, and I think here was like, okay, this is objective. This yeah. is pretty objective. Right. Um, and who worked on those positions, who came up with the idea, you know? So it's like, in that sense, I liked it. Um, I think it was cool to learn how businesses work. Right. It's cool to be able to talk to like, you know, meet with Sheryl Sandberg and understand how Facebook works. And then, you know, meet with some people like, like Sundar Pichai at Google. Like that was cool right? As a 20 year old, you're like, that's pretty interesting. Um, and then the money, and I think the money was interesting. I didn't really care about the money as much as I cared about the affirmation. So I think it was like all those things sort of hit my boxes, but then 
Yeah, realize longer term that, okay, after you have some success, like you have the affirmation, then you're almost like, what's next? I have a, a good friend who makes a lot of money. Yeah. And he wants to do something else. Same. But I have that, a lot of friends in the industry. Yeah. And, and you were making, I mean, yeah. next level money. Yeah. And you're going to a startup where I'm guessing your salary is. I didn't like, take a salary my first year and a half. Yeah. And yeah. so how did you finally make that leap? And I think because that courage, I think a lot of people yeah. uh, want to learn from. I, you know, I yeah, a lot of, I don't know. I mean, like, I think for me, it became more of a calling. Like, I just started spending time with the guys. And like, I just started to realize, like, this was more interesting to me every day. Like, I was getting up more excited about this. And I also looked at, like, what's my risk versus what's my reward? I was like, okay, my risk is this fails, probably very likely. Um, I'm like, if it's going to fail, it's probably going to fail pretty quick, you know, like one to two years. So I was like, I'll just go back to the industry. In that sense, like, I don't mind proving myself again. I don't mind starting out at a smaller, shittier fund or going back to a bank and working myself up again. Like, I don't mind that. Um, I'd done it before, so I felt like I could do that again. Um, so for me, it was just like, okay, if I fail, decision tree matrix. All right, I fail and go back to doing this. Like, But, like, you know, if this succeeds, like, I'll learn so much more about so like how to grow a team right how to work with people not just numbers on a scoreboard right like how to actually like work with people where you're not the expert where like dude i can't do what our hardware engineers do i can't do what our firmware guy does i can't do with like you know our like even our some of our marketing team does right like and so let, let alone some of our like ux and app team so like i think like the idea of being able to like work with people like that and learn from them. I just felt like this is a space I care about, I'm passionate about and life's short. And so, yeah, like the risk reward made sense to me. Um, but I think a lot of people aren't willing to let go. Like, I don't know many of my friends in the hedge fund world that really be like, dude, I, yeah, I won't take a salary for the next two to three years. And like, that's when I was like, yeah, I don't mind taking no salary for the next two to three years. I didn't think I'd have this money. It's just here anyway. I wasn't spending a lot of it. So I think that was it. Like I was just willing to let go. I was willing to fail. I guess part of me is surprised because like you never ran a company before. Or I didn't know what I was getting in for. Yeah. Sure How the hell did you figure it out? Like what mistakes were going on? Like, oh, I mean, that's man. obviously. I'm still figuring that out. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> like I'm by no means a, a good CEO. But I also like I tell this to like, you know, we're trying to promote even people within and have them take bigger roles. And like and they're like, oh, I'm not ready. yet. I'm like, guys, like if you're ready, it's too late. Right. Like, and you will learn in the uncomfortable. That's where the magic happens. Right. Like it was super awkward. Are you kidding? Like I look the first time I got off the plane in Finland, like, you know, the guy, like the security guard, like pulled up his gun and was like, let me see your passport. Right. Like, <laughs> like, of course it was definitely, it was definitely uncomfortable. But like, I, I think for me, that was like part of the, the fun and part of the learning. That's like where you learn. Um, so it's been super hard. We've made tons of mistakes. I should have done things organizationally and set up more structure and like, you know, probably done like 90, 90 things better than I've done. But you just learn it by sometimes screwing up, you know, and then talking to people who've done a really good job and learning from them. That's wild, man. How's the journey been? Oh, man, it's don't it was the best decision I've ever made. Um, like it was I'm learning a ton every day. I get to talk to like really cool people who've done awesome things and broadens your horizon. I think it teaches you to be a leader, um, teaches you to be vulnerable. You have to learn how to be vulnerable. That was probably the hardest part for me. Um, I was sitting down with our CTO um, and on our software team and our CTO on our hardware team. Um, and I'm like trying to tell them like, you need, we need to get off just like, you guys are super talented. You're super ready. Like you need to start leading more people, making bigger decisions. And they're like, well, I'm not ready. I'm like, you know, one of the guys we're talking about like, hey, maybe you should take like CP at like a chief product officer. Like we don't have that role in the company, but maybe you could be one person lead at all. He's like, dude, I'm not ready. All this architectural stuff needs to get done. And who's going to ask me that question? I'm like, we'll figure it out. I was like, if you step up to this, I was like, here, we'll go talk to one of the product officers, the CPO, you know, that, that worked at Pandora, CPO that worked at YouTube. Like, well, you know, let's go talk to those people and learn just like that's well. And on the way, we'll start to carve out some ideas, learn from three or four different people and try to try, you know, put some stuff into work and see, see what happens. But you're only going to learn it by doing it. And it's funny, though, because you are right. And I love hearing that reminder from you. It's like that part where you don't know is where you are going to grow. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I was curious, like, did you not have some considerations like where, you know, Apple's eating the health world and connected it here and so forth? Where yeah. And Fitbit, you know, obviously has made a lot of missteps. Fitbit's still huge, right? They're still like selling 15 million devices, you know, second to Apple in the market. 
you know, it's not like they're still they're still multi-billion dollar company. They have six hundred million dollars in cash. I think this space is just getting started. Like I do think ultimately these devices will be medical grade, will be able to help prevent like heart attack, stroke. Um <laughs> like I just think like people are waking up to like, you know, if you look at the stats, despite spending more money in healthcare, we're unhealthier than ever. Um, people are taking health into their own hands. They're spending money proactively. I think like the global number for wellness out of pocket health expenses is now like 3.7 trillion globally. So it's like, dude, it is a massive industry that's growing double digit. And it's to me, it's just like, that's not going to stop. Like people, I think, I think like where we started, like you going to a doctor and saying, you just listen to the doctor and the doctor says, that's it. I, I think people aren't going to stand for that. They're going to want to take shit into their own hands. Just like I was trying to take it in my own hands when my dad was having a stroke, but I think it's happening before. Like this Paleo FX conference, right? It's people who are trying to learn how to get healthier, right? How to look better, how to feel better, how to think better, right? How to have lower body fat, how to have better blood glucose. Like I think people are just like the, in, you know, the internet, one of the benefits of it is like this information is just out there, right? And people are starting to learn like, hey, you're a high performer. What does that look like? What does that data look like? How can I mimic that? How can I achieve that? What am I doing wrong? So I just feel like the quest for people's health, like ultimately this will end our life. Our health will be what kills us, right? Like all of us, right? Like that will be the end game. Um, so I think people's like thirst for that and trying to prevent that or at least live as happily as you can. Like, I don't know, that's universal. Like people ain't gonna stop spending on that. It's funny because then I wonder, do you see Aura as, it's a health company, not a ring company. I mean, ring in the- I'm No, being, no, yeah. our hardware device is a ring. Yeah, we're, we're actually called Aura Health though. It's a company. Yeah. Um, like we made that distinction. Yeah. It's like Netflix, not DVD flicks kind of thing. So yeah. There's other things probably you're considering in the future. For sure. I mean, I think we have so much just to work off of with this hardware. There's so much more we can do in the app and, you know, behavior change. There's so much more from a data side, like a machine learning side, like trying to actually, I would say, be more actionable for users. Um, and so, and then even then from a hardware perspective, there's so much more stuff we can do with this hardware that we're just beginning to scratch the surface of. How have you changed wearing it? Definitely drink less. Um, when I do drink, I drink earlier. Um, I think what I... I noticed that, by the way. Because when I go to sleep after, if I've been drinking at night, it yeah. affects my sleeping. Huge. I didn't realize yeah. it. Versus if you, look, if you do want to drink and you have a drink or two during the day, you're going to metabolize it by the time you go to bed. So you'll be much better the next day. Or like, I think, like I used to keep pushing myself, like I'd work really late, keep working really hard, and then I'd still try to go to the gym um, and I'd get injured a lot. And now what I've realized, and I, but I wouldn't make gains, right? Like, and now what I've realized is like, dude, taking sometimes like more time on rest, less time in the gym actually ends up yielding better results. So like, you know, I'd be going to the gym all the time and not putting up more weight or like not losing weight or depending on whatever my goals were. And then I just started to use my HRV, uh, your heart rate variability. It's a sign of just overall like nervous system stress, parasympathetic. It's like your flight or fight response. Um, that's like a very good metric that actually a lot of pro athletes are now using to train. So they'll be like, oh, my HRV is, you know, tanked one day. I worked out really hard or I had a game that day. I'll actually wait a day or two till it's back up to train heavy again. And then you're able to lift more on those days. Um, what have you found interesting from the having customer data like that? you've Ooh, seen? Yeah. Um, Obviously, it's autonomous, uh, yeah. anonymized. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the first thing we've seen is like our women users are generally like better sleepers. Um, and when you look at the data, when you look at the scientific <laughs> data, it actually says the opposite. Like women actually aren't as good sleepers as men. I think what we have found with our users is like the women are more self-aware um, and they tend to be a little bit more disciplined than the guys. Um, guys are more erratic. Like they'll either be super disciplined or super like <laughs> the standard deviation on, on data for, for men is like way higher yeah. than women. So women are just more consistent from what we've seen in the data. Um, I think. Other things that I've like, we've just heard that I thought was me, but seen from other users and like, we're trying to evolve this in the app as well. Is just like how much, what time you eat affects your sleep. So like eating four or five hours before bed versus just one or two hours, huge effect. What time you work out relative to what time you sleep. Your body is a clock. It operates off a circadian, you know, clock, like a master clock. And like the more consistent you are at starting that clock and like stopping at the same time each day you tend to then operate like a much better like machine like your hormones are released at the same time like versus like your body knowing hey is it 
morning or not morning because you're changing your sleep wake time by like two hours what time you wake up so consistency matters two things were interesting for me among many um is one i have a i'm in a few different like groups of like pretty successful dudes yeah and all of them had it these guys are more than me like pretty pretty obsessed with like you know self-data and all sure. this kind of stuff where yeah. and it was interesting that they were all using it um and so I was like, okay, something's happening there where these yeah. like, what do they call the people that are tracking all their health data now? Uh, or what? Are they, what's the term for it? Oh, biohackers? Yeah, biohackers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're all like, they're tracking everything and they're doing, oh, I use magnesium for it. Yeah, and all. right. Yeah. I tried it and I was like, oh, nothing. But they were all, all of them were using this. But And the thing that got me wondering is like, how did this device hit? Um, I think like the focus on sleep as a wearable, like when we launched the Gen 1 ring, was like unique, right? Fitbit didn't have sleep out there. Apple still doesn't have their own native sleep. There's third-party sleep tracking on the Apple Watch, but not like Apple itself. And so I think when you look at the effect of sleep and your cognitive performance and your physical performance, I think we were just early to productize that um, and how much it matters and how much you feel. I just feel it's like, dude, you sleep like shit. You look at your data, you feel like shit. And you're like, oh, let me try sleeping earlier and not try eating as late, right? And like you feel better, so it's like actionable and it's impact. And it impacts everything. You don't want to sleep for sleeping's sake, right? Like who gives a shit about getting good at sleep? <laughs> you want to get sleep, you want to sleep good for living, <laughs> living sake, right? Like you want to be an awesome entrepreneur. You want to be super fit, right? Like you want to have great deep relationships and be on, you know, like a deep emotional connection, not brain dead during the day. You know, no, this directly impacts all my passions or like what I'm trying to do in my life. Right. Like that's. And so I think it was just that focus on sleep um, and trying to keep it simple where we like hit it, hit it right. It's interesting is I had sleep cycle, the app. Yeah. But for some reason I didn't stick with it. And I guess maybe the difference is maybe your it's your readiness score and, the, and your sleep data where I think you guys are very specifically like, here's how to be better at sleep or how you did a good job. at sleep. Yeah. Right. Because I did notice that I've been using it for about a month now. Yeah. And I can tell, like, when you guys have my rating score is good, maybe it's also you're triggering me. I feel like, oh, yeah, I'm energetic today. Yeah. <laughs> and you go and do more shit and then you feel better. Just, yeah. And you could just lie to me. It's fine. But no, there's something, there is a little bit. We've joked that we should just do that. Like, like every day? Like, no, just like, sometimes it's like, the placebo is a hell of a drug, right? So if you start telling people they're slowly feeling better, they probably actually would. Yeah. But we obviously haven't done no. that. Um, I think it's it's the physical component. Like, sleep cycles an app. Um, and here there's like a physical reminder to wear it or do something that drives like a deeper commitment. It's like, you know, it's not like obviously as deep as a gang, right? Like on the Crips or whatever. But like, you know, like you, you do have something physical that you put on that you remember, right? Versus just like, dude, I have 100 apps in here. I can't even remember the last app I downloaded, right? In the last two weeks. So I think there's something physical that still ties you to something. Yeah. Um, and then I think because like, that is just an app that is using your phone that's like either under your pillow or farther away from your bed. The data is not as accurate. So I think people also, it's just like, hey, the data, the data feels right. Like when my readiness score is like, I actually feel good. I get more done. It does yeah. feel pretty accurate. Last week, at one day it said I was really ready. And I was like, I do not feel ready today. But you can't be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Or you might try something and maybe you were. Yeah. Well, I think what's also, uh, what's interesting with that is that it's, it's hard because then you're basically waiting till the next night to yeah, do it again. To do it again. Yeah. yeah, so I wonder if there's things for the daytime. Oh, yeah. No, we're working on that. Uh, so we'll have a meditation mode that ships in weeks, not months, so less than a month. So that'll be pretty cool. We're trying to do things. I think Sleep Cycle does a really good job on like tags and correlations. I think they've done a really good job on the data visual visualization and correlations and tags. So we're trying to, we're working on that as well. Um, but yeah, I definitely think there's more things you can start to do during the day, like call to actions that... And we barely use like we, we barely use any of like the messaging and notifications. notifications. Yeah. Do most so I only wear it at night. Is that most people do that? No, like actually that's super yeah, only about seven or nine percent of our users wear it at night. Yeah. Oh, most people wear it all day? day. Yeah. Um and we do give you we track steps during the day, stuff like that. So we will be expanding that, you know. So it'll be more meditation mode would be another reason to track it during the day. Do you want it to be a household name? Do you want every single person in the world like to wear an or ring like what i think like our, our goal as a company is to um, provide the most value to the users and be one of the top five players so like i think we're like look there's you could be xiaomi or fitbit and maybe sell a cheaper device and sell more units um, but maybe you're not providing the most value to people right so i think our, our goal is to like hey be you know provide the most value to users see the most meaningful change 
right, for those users, like behavior change, have the best retention rates in the industry, um, but be in that top five. How have you guys been going about getting people to know about you? A lot of it has been like a lot of the like biohackers or other people like learning about it, using it and just like loving it. Um, like at the conference, it was pretty interesting. We just kept meeting so many people like, oh, I have it. I love it. I've told like five, I've gotten five people to buy one. So like we have not spent yet on marketing. We're spending like 30 grand a month, um, you know, doing paid ads and it's just test, like just re retargeting, testing stuff. We're just, and we just started that like three, four months ago. Um, we, we have been supply constrained. The demand was way higher than we thought. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I still think there's like a, we advertise a four to six week on the website. Wait, you know, and it's been mainly like eight to 12 weeks for the last, you know, since the ring starts shipping in September. So selling hasn't been an issue. Um, selling has not been an issue. Uh, I think now as we start to get the supply chain caught up, we're like, now we really need to focus on the brand, start telling our story do PR, then do paid marketing. So now sort of like when we're getting ready in the next six months to really step on the gas a bit. How are you spending time these days? Like, what are you excited about with all this stuff going on? I do spend a lot of my time trying to like learn from other entrepreneurs about like, honestly, like how to organize teams, how to build like a good culture, um, which was completely opposite of how I spent my time in the beginning, like when I joined. Um, like I was just trying to spend my time doing stuff. I've tried to spend a lot more time hiring as we've been growing the team, trying to delegate and, you know, put other people in decision-making power so I'm not a bottleneck. Um, so I've been I've been trying to spend a lot more time on like how to manage a growing organization and how to hire for it. I would say like a lot of my time learning from others, how to organize a team, how to get good team dynamics, how to grow like a What team. have you found or what, uh, and we'll, we'll wrap it up in yeah. a second. What, what changes have you made in terms of team structure or insights you found in an organization that have been effective Ooh. or not effective as yeah. well? Maybe some uh, things that didn't work. Most effective things we've done lately, and I've heard both sides of this, like, I like Jason Fried a lot. Like, I think he's awesome at Basecamp, but like, I think we have gone, we have a little bit more complex product. Like there's multiple sub teams, like within the product itself of like hardware, firmware, algorithms, right? And app, and even with the app, then there's like the back end, the cloud side. So um, we have put in like OKRs and, and actually like roadmaps and KPIs. The most effective thing has been this thing called PPPs. Um, it's progress plans and problems. And so like, Instead of like wasting time in a meeting talking about, oh, giving me an update, what did you do? Like just having every person sort of communicate that like in those, hey, here's the progress I've made. Here are the plans I have for the next few weeks or months, right? But here are the problems and actually focusing on the problems. The last two things were one, were there cultural issues? Because you're, you're Sikh. Uh, yeah. And, and then you go to Finland, which is the whitest country. It's in, the whitest, most homogeneous. <laughs> yeah. Is it really? Well, it's got to be top up there, it's right? It's like white walkers, man. It's yeah. like <laughs> blonde hair, blue eyes. Yeah. No. Yeah. And then I was just like, there's a Sikh guy coming here. Coming, and so I was thinking culturally, yeah. what was that experience like? And then I, I and I do want to wrap up with the cultural one and the, how do you organi organize the uh, company with two, you know, one, you have so many subgroups, plus you have yeah. lo two locations. locations. It's the hardest thing. That's the hardest thing. I think the remote work, like I do wake up at like 445 and I'm normally on the phone at five o'clock. Um, so yeah, that part sort of sucks, but actually putting in some of these KPIs, PPPs, okay. Like that stuff has helped that a lot. The app team should see what the leadership team's PPPs are. Um, it like, I don't have to waste that much time telling them. They already know what the problems are, right? And then everyone starts focusing on ideas on how to solve them. But um, like, so I think some of that structure stuff has specifically helped being remote. Um, it just helps you prioritize um, and like break out faster. It's like people will start to see the problems and just like, oh, let's get together. You know, they do want to solve them, right? And so you get like, let's break out. Let's set up a separate time. Um, so that has been, the structure has been actually the most helpful. For the remote. PPP structure? Yeah. And just the other stuff we put in as well. Um, culturally, you know, I think we finally, finally it, it has taken, this is something I failed at. I should have put that in like day one as CEO, but mission, vision, and values. And so, yes, am I different religiously? Totally. Right. Like it's like, they've never probably heard of Sikhism. Right. Um, and it's sort of crazy because the population of Finland's like 5 million. I was thinking about this. There's like 20 plus million Sikhs in the world. So I was like, it is sort of nuts that like most people have heard of Finland, but haven't heard of Sikhism, even outside <laughs> of like Finland, you know. Um, but I, I actually think like defining our culture as an aura culture and not as a Finnish culture, not as an American culture, not as a Sikh or Catholic culture. I think like realizing that, hey, we have these universal values that we believe in as a team and like, you know, and we're on this mission and vision that like we've set out and created together, like that took a lot of time to put together. I think we started working on it as a team 
like our leadership team back in October. We just finished it this week, like just this week. So that, that has taken six months. Um, and I felt really bad about it, but then like you can go, Tony Shea has some good stuff online, like what he did when he put that in at Zappos. And like, I thought we were like morons. Like I thought I was like an idiot for not getting this done. Like immediately when I was a CEO and like, dude, like I think Tony Shea was like, Zappos was a hundred. I got to talk to Jack Dorsey about it. He was like, dude, he just redid some of his values and stuff at like Twitter in the last two years. And they're like thousands of people. Right. So um, I think it's like starting to realize that being vulnerable is okay. Making mistakes and not putting some of that stuff in like is actually okay. And that has helped culturally start to like align everyone that like we're on this together. Like we all believe in these values and sure there's a couple more I would have added. There's a couple more other people added, but let's keep this simple. Let's agree to these five values and like, let's focus the team around this mission and vision. Well, I think the one thing I want to highlight, uh, one, I want everyone to go buy an aura ring. <laughs> it hopefully ships relatively soon. Yeah. So we're uh, shipping now and like, most people, I'll just, yeah, probably shouldn't say this because people are like going to go rush yeah, and buy yeah. one. But I know we're, most rings are shipping in, in within three weeks now. Okay. Well, I love my Aura Ring. Go check it out, AuraRing.com. Um, one thing that you do, I don't maybe know, I guess you, you probably notice you do it, but you go and really learn from other experts. You're very active with that, which is really uh, inspiring. I'm like, instead of trying to figure things out, you can figure it out. And I think that's sure. great. But also, they've already figured it out. Just go to them copy it or learn from it learn and from implement, it. Yeah. implement yourself. Um, maybe one thing we can end with is, do you, do you know what your mission, vision, and values are if you feel comfortable <laughs> sharing? Yeah, sure. And yeah. We'll, we'll end it on that. Yeah. Um, our, now that you give me some tequila, I'm going to forget them. Yeah. Um, our mission is, um, you know, we want to empower people to own their potential. Um, so I think our cre- three key words there are empower, own, and potential. Um, empower, I think most people know what that means, giving you the authority to ownership is interesting because it gets back to how we started the conversation. Like, I don't want some doctor to tell me what I need to do with my health. I don't want like actually even this biohacker to tell me to do with my health. Right. Or like that blogger or that Instagram, you know, model that posts like protein recipes and shit. I want to see what my data, like what's happening with me and not just listen to what's working for someone else. So I want to own it. And then potential, um, we like that word potential because it's wide. Like I said, most of our users actually aren't trying to be super athletic. I was sort of shocked when I came. They they're, they want to be more productive. They want to have more energy. They want to have deeper relationships. Like that was more meaningful to them. And I think the word potential is like in that sense, like it's important to what's important to you at that time. Um, and everyone has a different sort of, you know, what's important to them at a certain time. So that was, um, our vision is, um, we still have to put a verb in front of this. Our marketing person was telling me last night. So, um, it's right now it's a, we'll probably add a word or two. It's a new perspective on health and performance where progress comes from within a new perspective on health was interesting, but we actually like health and performance because health is just like your basic health, right? Like my dad does not have his basic health. He cannot walk right now. Right. Like, uh, but that's not enough for people, right? Like we're, you know, put on this earth. Most of us do have our basic health, which we all should be super grateful for, but like we want a little bit more than that. So we threw in performance. Um, but I think the cool part was progress from within. Most of the time, like I have always judged progress from like, what are external people thinking about me? How much money am I making? Actually, no, progress comes from within, right? It's like where I'm at right now. I think like after six months, we're finally pretty happy with it. That sounds great. Yeah. So mission, vision, pretty cool. Values, um, understanding was one of them. Integrity. um, So I'll just try to get through them quicker. Um, Innovation. So that's obviously a big one. And then community. And we call community two words. We have like our external community, but then also our internal, our aura family. So it's interesting with uh, mission, vision, and values is that growing up and working when I worked at Facebook and I worked at some of the earlier companies, um, I always thought it was really stupid. Yeah. I remember hearing I people like, oh, my mission is this. I'm like, yeah, whatever. My mission is to make money. It's something that I'm still working through, but I have realized more like people want to be a part of something. They really do. Like the, yeah. the top performers are like, I can get a job at pretty much anywhere. I'll create my own company. It's like, well, what's the purpose? Like, yeah. Why are you doing this? And I think those things, and, and I'm, I still need to keep getting better at it, but like yeah. help you say, hey, here's the direction of why, where we're going and why it's exciting. Yeah. I mean, frankly, like I think it's the 10%. You spend maybe maybe 10%, maybe more like 5% thinking about it. But it's that 5% that's so important, right? The harder part we've been talking about is how do we implement these values? And it's like, it's actually in a like, oh, how do we talk to people? How do we hold meetings? How do we give recognition for employees? Hey, you, you like we had some problem the other day 
and uh, with like 3D Secure, like was bugging out on our payment on our website. And so like more transactions were, and like our, dude, our web developer who was like on it, like saw it, was like, let me try this. Let me like, he just took it off for two days. And he was like, I like, he looked at historical fraud. He's like, fraud's not high. Like, let's take it off. Let's like fix this. And like within like two days, right? Like it was like, okay, dude, sales took a dip and then sales hit the high for the month after he fixed that out. Like it was like, shit, innovate, you know, great, good job. Um, so I think it's like also then you start to recognize employees that way and then also how you hire. There's a lot of people, like you said, that you can find that can get the job done, but how are they going to fit with the team? So time. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did. If you did, go check out Heartbreed at Aura Ring. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com or at The Prizzle on Twitter or Harprizzle on Instagram. That's a pretty good screen names. Also, go to okdorf.com, Aura Ring, that's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G, for an exclusive $50 off. Damn good deal. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go spoon together. Before you go, let me know what you thought of the episode by emailing me, podcast at okdorf.com. I read every single one of your emails. Product plug, also remember to go check out the Sumo Ride. Come ride with me, sumoride.com, to help buy laptops for kids who can't afford them and get exclusive prizes for yourself. And final special plug, thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com. I hope you guys don't go use him for your podcast audio needs because he's my favorite and I don't want him to get too busy and leave me. Just kidding. I love you, Jason. No, I'm not kidding. Don't use him. But if you do need someone the best, go Jason at podcasttech.com and everyone else at the Dork Team. That is Brandon, Dean, and David Kelly. And special shout out of the week to Eamon at AppSumo.com this week. Eamon, you're literally my angel. You kill it running AppSumo. You've hired an amazing team. And somehow you've put up with me for over five years. Keep it up, brother. I love you. Keep doing great work. What's your favorite underwear brand?